0: I would consider myself a intellectual alien nerd fanboy. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not necessarily proud of that. Uh, it's not something I'm going to put on a resume. But it's, it's, I think, fairly accurate as far as uh, personal descriptions go in that respect. There is a lot to be said for the biases of, of our nostalgia. And, you know, both of us are, and I'm sure a lot of the fans of the franchise in general are uh, colored by that as well. Like the nostalgic draw to these films is... Part of the reason why I'm so fascinated to talk about it, even though I wasn't impressed by the film itself when I went to go see it. And now I want to go see it again. Greetings, future fossils. Welcome to another episode of the podcast that explores
1: our place in time. This is your first <laughs> recorded introduction from the cell phone lot of the Denver airport during a blizzard where I am currently awaiting my partner and her parents to show up. And then we can launch together into the insane holiday maelstrom. But while we're here in this storm, very characteristic in some ways of the storms that act as a plot device by blocking surface-to-orbit communication in such films as Alien Covenant. While I'm waiting here in the cell phone lot, my little mobile recording studio in the front seat of the car here, I want to explain the decision to release this particular episode today. Originally, I was going to put this out as a Patreon exclusive episode because it's over six months since the latest Alien film came out. It was generally panned by critics. It received a bathwater reception at the box office. And we've all already completely forgotten it because it was eclipsed by the absolutely amazing film Blade Runner 2049. Which, by the way, I have recorded probably half a dozen episodes about with various philosophers, film critics, and scholars. And will be delighted to string those out throughout the first quarter of 2018 for you. But Alien, and more generally the biomechanical body horror of H.R. Giger, this all holds a very special place in my heart. A rather large part of my dreaming mind takes the form of an alien hive. And I know that all of this chest-bursting and biomechanical erotic machine-human penetration has deeply infused my relationship to transhumanism, body hacking, and thoughts of the future, a general appreciation for wetware and... Other gruesome weirdness. But at any rate, I wanted to put this piece out now because, one, alien films actually strongly represent Christmas. It's uh, not quite as much of a thing as Die Hard, but Christ and Christian themes show up time and time again in conversations around the xenomorph and the motif of human sacrifice in the alien movies. Also, I wanted to give everybody here listening a special Christmas present, which is the return of Original Future Fossils co-host Evan Snyder for an unmitigated and unrepentant dork fest of epic proportions. I feel like if you are listening to this show, chances are you're a nerd. Uh, nerds are cool now, so that's great. But... We don't really go deep into fandom or into geek culture on the show. Typically, we keep it kind of snooty and cerebral. And I wanted to uh, fix that and take everybody on a trip into the comic book store that is my Magic the Gathering card-playing childhood. So, here we have a most excellent conversation with my fellow alien aficionado, Evan Snyder, a.k.a. electronic musician Skytree. But before we begin this episode, I want to give a shout out to the Body Hacking Conference. I will be out at the Body Hacking Conference in Austin, Texas from February 2nd to 4th. It's been going on for a few years. This will be my second year participating, and it is a super cool convergence of people from all different sectors of the human experience with the common interest in DIY body modification and the augmentation of human potential that that represents. If you enjoy this episode and our philosophical disquisitions on the nature of cybernetic identity and prosthesis, the blurring boundary between the body and its technologies then i think you'd probably really love to come to austin in in february and join me at the body hacking conference you can find out more at bdyhax.com lastly i want to shower my love and appreciation on all 80 of you subscribing to this show on patreon we are a small and scrappy tribe and I deeply, deeply thank you for helping me pay about half of my rent <laughs> right now. I'm so close. I'm so close to sustainability and you've brought me very, very close. It was my New Year's resolution 2017 to make a living doing what I love. And I am almost there. Patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. I also know that times are turbulent and unpredictable. If you want to support the show and you're broke, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review on iTunes. I do read them. I adore them. I fold them and put them under my pillow at night, and I whisper to them. They become my friends, and that's sort of almost as good as being your friend. You get to know that you created something that I now live with in some freaky fantasy relationship. So that's great. And it also helps the show get more listeners right so anyway okay i'm done i love you so much merry christmas if that's your thing if it's not then let us relish in the dark christ of the xenomorph as it rises from the steaming chest of chris Aram. um if you don't already know this is a spoiler alert episode so if you haven't seen this film you're not even listening to this so all right love you see you on the other side These are crazy times. Like, on the one hand, cryptocurrency, possible democratization of wealth and financing, very hopeful. On the other hand, everyone but me seems to agree Alien Covenant was a, a shit show.
0: At least we're not hopeless in terms of Ridley Scott's uh, career path. Towards his retirement If the dude ever does retire But uh, yeah, I'm intrigued to hear your your reasoning on that I've grown to uh, appreciate Prometheus a bit more namely because of uh, some post-theater edits That were made And I was, you know, giving credit where it's due Looking back to The theatrical release of Blade Runner Arguably being a bomb At the time it was released And, you know, uh, with the voiceover of Harrison Ford And quite different edit uh, leading to negative reviews across the board And then of course it becoming an uh, essential sci-fi classic You know, maybe top of the uh, stack uh, After subsequent re- releases and, and now the uh, final cut um, Which is arguably the best And uh, I guess uh, what Ridley has said is the closest to his original vision um So maybe we'll yet uh, see some additional edits drop, uh, official or unofficial, that will clarify some things. It's hard to push forward something that is uh, a new idea or new ideas uh, when Hollywood executives are concerned without uh, compromising certain elements even if you're Ridley Scott so it looks like that's probably been a factor Um, of course he is an older dude and uh, he does seem sometimes a bit drunk when he's giving interviews but you know at his age given his success he can do what he wants but uh, sometimes I wonder if that's a part of it Well, okay so there's the famous U2 effect of people
1: getting to a Point in their career where they can seemingly do no wrong, and therefore drag us all behind them over, uh, you know, a gravel road of their own creative mistakes that nobody was smart enough to warn them about. But in this particular case, I the George Lucas effect. Yes, Otherwise. let's call it the George Lucas effect. Yep. The the issue that I see here is that actually, in a sense. Alien Covenant, if anyone has a problem with it, it's probably because it was compromised by the opposite problem, which was, I think, Ridley Scott's desire to accommodate his fans. You know, I think that the, most people's complaints about that film are that it's a uh, Force Awakens-esque highlight reel of movie moments from the rest of the alien franchise that it's sort of just a a weakened conglomeration of other alien movies and so that it couldn't decide what it wanted to be which i think is actually a fair complaint up to a point point.
0: i I get that it's not it's not necessarily my first criticism nor really one that uh overshadows the rest so we can get to those but yeah in terms of uh, pleasing the fan base and including the, you know, uh, not necessarily the classic alien, but the uh, proto-morph, so to speak, um, is uh, potentially a good move. It wasn't necessarily executed, I think, as well as it could have been. But for all of its failings, uh, that's not my primary concern, to be honest, as I'm always down to see some Xenos so or Protos or Neo or whatever mm. the terminology might be.
1: So, yeah, so let's... Um Let's just lay this out, exposition-wise. We had the one episode of this show, in the time since you've been an active co-host of the show, we had one episode with Michael Phillip doing Westworld problems, looking at the world of Westworld and being like, what are the problems in this space? Can it make sense? Is this a believable plausible science fictional universe or is this just nonsense and i think it's totally valid that we have another one of these sort of next world problems issues like special episodes where you and i get into like a, a, a toe-to-toe on whether the things that people are doing in this alien movie makes any damn sense whatsoever and i think that that's that'll go a long way towards explaining how i am comfortable with this movie and really uh willing to give ridley scott the benefit of a doubt that this is a necessary piece on the way to saying something much grander and more intelligent and uh then why why you think that it's sort of uh i don't know however you would put it
0: a well, it's entirely entirely subjective of course but uh i'm sometimes reluctant to pontificate because of the sheer lack of fundamental knowledge that i feel i have when it comes to things that are uh super academic complex and uh subtle and maybe underestimating some of my capacity in that respect but probably overestimating a lot uh i have though nerded out to alien movies since i was a kid and my mom showed me alien and aliens when i was 13 because they were her favorite sci-fi films and you know, I, I don't claim to have more expertise than another super nerdy person who watches movies a lot of times, but that's what's happened. And uh, in that sense, we can actually share that level of, of sort of common folk expertise across the board with other fellow uh, sci-fi nerds, whether they're into this particular franchise or not. So it may seem a little bit derivative to, you know, uh, take a podcast like Future Fossils, which which can really go uh, down deep and, and way up to some pretty far reaches in scope and broad as well in that scope. Um, and then boil it down to something like talking about Alien Covenant you know, Which is uh, <laughs> uh, not necessarily the top grossing summer movie uh, Or <laughs> movie of 2017 yet Because it's not not quite technically summer yet uh, Arguably it's a summer flick But yeah, I, I'm happy to talk about it Because at least in this sense I can go uh, pretty deep with this And really nerdy And I think the other fans of the franchise out there Will, uh, will resonate with a lot of what we have to talk about Because I think you're probably in the same vein, my friend
1: Right on. Yeah, I think as as far as it being a springtime movie, we can agree that that this is the springtime of our discontent, and that
0: sure, (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of other things going with it. But yeah, it's uh, it is nice to escape, even with imperfect uh, uh, springtime discontent movies. So, like, let's as far as this show is framed as us.
1: Entertaining the thought experiment about what people in the future might actually think like and what they might actually care about. I think this is actually a totally appropriate discussion because the number one issue that people have with both Prometheus and Alien Covenant is why did you take your fucking helmet off? (laughs)
0: So. <laughs> why didn't they even put helmets on uh, in Covenant? That was that was a next level issue. To Why did you take it off in Prometheus? But yeah, I agree. So really quickly, uh, since I haven't been on the show for a while, I just want to say hey to yeah. everybody uh, that was listening from the beginning. Uh, this is Evan Skytree. And uh, of course, we got uh, the host, Michael Garfield, uh, who I haven't talked to in a little bit. And it's really good just to catch up a bit uh, in general, let alone in specific with this kind of topic. So um, glad to be back, and uh, look forward to the next uh, hour or two talking about alien, uh, you know, BS and and uh, relations to actual phenomenological pathways into the future, et cetera. Totally, you know, if for those who who don't know,
1: he's like the Professor X of this podcast, and I'm like the Magneto. Uh, so like we're Ooh, still like in that. The, we're still in the prequel space of of like neither of us really has opened our school yet or whatever
0: it's going to be a while until i'm as school as patrick stewart and probably never so <laughs> okay the early uh, uh professor x yeah but okay so you're a super logical
1: dude and you have every right to be upset about the fact that this colonization team would descend upon a planet that is not their home planet and not where helmets that's honestly a pretty reasonable thing the only thing that i can really think of is that there's this trailer for the film that includes a bunch of footage that wasn't actually in the final cut
0: uh, there's three three uh you know uh online only clips technically but yeah yeah yeah
1: one of them is the the mother trailer where they just keep showing You know, them saying, Mother, what is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? Mother, how do I fix breakfast? You know, Mother. And it it occurred to me that what we're seeing here is we're looking 100 years into the future of artificially intelligent assistance to the point where we've got three actually in this film. We got the androids, David and Walter, but then we also have the ship, the mother brain of of the covenant itself which the characters in these outtakes treat as a character in the same way that all of the 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 characters of the first alien film treated mother as a distinct agency in that film and it's just it seems to me like what we're being encouraged or invited to believe here is that Even though these people look like human beings to us, they look like modern people, that they are dependent upon... Technology in ways that we can't even imagine
0: currently. So they're Uber millennials with like a uh, Uber smartphone addiction.
1: Yeah, Plus. Plus. yeah. That that basically like they don't even have the smartphone anymore. They're living inside the phone, and so there's like when you think about like Nicholas Carr's book Glass Cage Automation and Us. When you think about how the autopilot of a commercial airliner has actually created this condition in in modern pilots where they're forgetting the first principles of aviation. And a lot of the air crashes over the last 20 years or so have been because a pilot made some rookie mistake when the autopilot went down. And it just seems like if we were watching the... I forget what it's like, Air France 777 or something. If we were watching this crash as a film we would have a hard time believing it like we would be like how could anyone be so stupid as to stick up and stall the plane when they're losing velocity but there it is there it like it happened now like take that forward a 100 years and i think like if if anything like we could have been serviced better as a movie going audience by making this explicit and I'm aware that I'm like reaching to give these guys the benefit of a doubt, but it just seems to me like I am, I'm willing to expect that people are going to be this dumb in the future.
0: Sure. Well, I I think uh, Ridley's misanthropy is evident through many of his films and hence his fascination of focus on artificial intelligence. And in fact, it's evident in the very first scene of uh, Covenant where uh, Wayland, uh, who we see for the first time as a young dude, uh, after being played by the same uh, actor in Prometheus in old makeup... um, basically be a dick to uh david in his first five minutes of existence which is to say that uh david has some very honest and genuine questions that in fact uh i think a lot of humans share uh, right off the bat and walter or excuse me uh, we'll get to walter in a second but wayland uh the founder of this company is sort of the, the tyrell of this uh uh corporate android enterprise and empire that may in fact be set on the same world we'll we'll get to that maybe at some yeah, point we want later on yeah let's, let's and, do that but yeah 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 we'll come back to that uh basically uh, given david's existential questioning right off the bat having initially by the way met his creator the very first moment of his awakening sort of removing any sort of like philosophical teleological attractor that many of us are forever pursuing until perhaps we die and go beyond and meet it or not um is immediately treated with disrespect by said creator, which is uh, to you know request that he get him some tea, which is sitting right there as a, a gesture of subservience only and uh, dominance. So I- if Wayland arguably had not been a dick to his finest creation right off the bat, um, perhaps David wouldn't have gone off the rails. If that hadn't initially gone off uh, the rails in that sense, if Wayland had respected his creation as a human being or as a parallel to it, uh, then maybe we, we wouldn't have had the same phenomena. But uh, t- t- to give another example of what you were mentioning earlier with respect to uh, airline pilots and, and related incidences, uh, there was recently, you know, the, the first ever human being to perish in an automated uh, automobile accident, uh, which is a Tesla down mm. in Florida. This guy that was a, a beta tester for all sorts of things was a huge tech head, arguably really intelligent, according to all of his friends. Unfortunately, the very first person ever perished in a, a automated automobile accident. This, this Tesla uh, Roadster, and by all accounts, uh, he was a above average uh, of intelligence human being, uh, really into especially automation and soft AI things of that nature. But uh, with the autopiloted uh, Tesla function, uh, it's stated that you had to keep your hands uh, on the steering wheel at all times and remain vigilant. And I guess he was not doing that. He was perhaps checking his iPad or something. Um, Because of the convenience of the functionality, he forgot the very basic uh, aspects of self-preservation. He trusted the machine. And that's uh, something that genuinely uh, happened, will unfortunately probably happen many times uh, still. Um, The argument could be made uh, that automated Cars are still going to be more safe over time, and the more there are. In fact, if they're all automated, then they could be much, much safer. But uh, for the time being, it's going to be a bit of a learning curve, and I think our trust in technology is a big issue uh, with respect to that. Totally.
1: So it actually sounds like we agree on
0: this point, because I. But that's really stupid. And they should still be astronauts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah I mean, one would go. think. One would think, but I mean, really, like there's that there's a line in the film where one of the the two guys the, the the couple of security officers i forget the one who has a mouth burster uh, pre yeah. pre mouth burster says i hate space and it's like what it's clear that what we're dealing with here is not a team of veteran astronauts You know, that we're dealing with civilians that have been chosen for like, just as in Prometheus, that we're dealing with people that were, that were chosen for, uh, you know, scientific capacity of one kind or another, but it's really unclear, um, just how much training they've actually received here or how much th- that we feel that they like I, you know how much training is somebody going to have getting on a commercial space flight and in a lot of ways even though the these people are more responsible for the mission and the cargo etc they've probably spent their time training for what happens when they get there?
0: Sure, and it, it's possible that they weren't even necessarily equipped to handle a different planet because they were not they were not heading there initially. For for all we know, uh, and, and for all it seems, the planet they were heading towards was was vetted properly and probably by some kind of robotic missions or even manned missions that already cleared it. And uh, maybe they weren't even trained in, in how to deal with hostile, potentially hostile uh, xenological environments. You know.
1: That said. It's also total nonsense that any expedition ever, no matter how hospitable the atmosphere is, would not provide a full kit of totally contained spacesuits. You know, it's like they they were still expecting to have to terraform this place, which means they must have been expecting to hang out in suits outside for the first couple of years. It's just... Honestly, the only thing that I can do is chalk this up to the computer itself not reminding them to put on spacesuits because we've become that dependent on machine intelligence.
0: That's uh, that's a, a strong contender for a possible logical explanation. It is a bit of a stretch to assume that human beings, uh, no matter how misanthropic, you might be, or no matter how stupid you might believe human beings would be in the future, I can give that a bit of wiggle room. But there's another factor here which uh, lends a bit more credence to it, which is that at, at the beginning of the film, this is going to be a spoiler talk for, for obvious reasons, and we've already gotten to that a little bit. Uh, yeah. But in order for us to discuss this in depth, you know, we have to, to go into the minutiae, potentially. You've so, been warned! Yes, you've been warned. Spoiler uh, aversion uh, folks everywhere. The, the other possibility is that at the very beginning of the film the covenant is hit by a massive what i believe was a neutrino burst which is what destabilizes the uh, solar collectors and wakes up the crew kills the captain potentially you know damages some of the ship's systems and then they get conveniently that distress call of uh, you know take me home like a, a song coming through this uh, this beacon clearly Uh, harkening back to some kind of human cultural element. Now, I don't think that neutrino burst was an accident. I think that is something that uh, either David or something related to Weyland-Yutani created on purpose, because otherwise... Uh, David wouldn't have not gotten his ship of 2,000 colonists to mess with, and uh, it seems to me very intentional. Now, a part of that is that we don't know what the psychological or physiological effects would even be of that massive uh, of a potential radiation burst in space on the human mind, and... Uh, you know, when we wake up angry and we have bills to pay and we get stressed right away, it's harder to focus for the rest of the day. Now, you look how this crew woke up and then started making decisions after being blasted by a huge outburst of radiation that that almost destroyed them. That could have uh, messed with their brains to the point where the AI was not capable of reminding them to function properly.
1: Definitely, and I, and I think the other part of this that you're you're touching on, which needs to be discussed because it's not really made explicit in the film or they're holding on to it for the next one or something but there's in the this is a geek flag moment here in the novelization of the film which I have not read but luckily even geekier geeks have read for me and talked about on YouTube the last scene where David spoofs Walter's call sign and reports back to Earth as the survivor of this neutrino burst. It's different in the book, yeah. It's different in the book. He reports back to Wayland Utani as David and says, I'm in control of this ship now and I'm taking it to its original destination. And it it it's enough to wonder, as we we should be wondering this anyway, because no matter how rebellious David may seem, remember that like through the whole first film, he was still totally locked in as the servant of Peter Wayland. Like, up to the very end. No matter what he thought of that guy,
0: he was a robot created by him. He was hardwired to, to obey Wayland, no matter what. Yeah,
1: Right. So, we have no reason to believe that anything that David is doing on this planet, no matter how king of hell he thinks he is is not a direct result of his programming by Weyland-Yutani Corporation. And so like this sure. whole thing suggests that the reason the ship in the Nostromo in the first Alien film was directed to respond to the emergency beacon on LV-426 was because Wayland yutani already knew what was there somehow
0: ash being you know basically ready to uh violate quarantine procedures to bring it back onto the ship uh counter to ripley's strong demands otherwise right so this is like it's it's shaping up i think for
1: this series to be about how basically the alien is Wayland yutani intellectual property and that they've known this the the whole time
0: they want yeah, to be potentially that, at worst or at least, yeah, yeah. That you
1: know that basically in the same way that Xerox could have made the case that Apple computers is the intellectual property of Xerox because it was made by Xerox employees, on and their business plan was printed on Xerox equipment after hours in the Xerox building. We have yeah. no reason to doubt the. Claim on IP that it seems like Wayland Yutani would be making here. Not that they're trying to discover something, but that they're actually trying to reclaim a piece of technology that their own synthetic developed within the sort of the umbrella of their own R&D. And that basically, yeah, that, that what we have here is a clear chain of authorship, all the way down yeah. and that this mission was never intended to survive that basically like the alien covenant crew was sent into a trap from the beginning in order to pro- the factory yeah. yeah in order to provide david with additional experimental subjects
0: sure but uh i think personally uh I never felt like the alien was solely a creation of Whalen nitani or of uh, David in in specific. And I think this is touched on in the book, or has since been confirmed by Ridley and his screenwriter, that David, in fact, did not develop or create the xenomorph, nor the egg. Now, they said that about David. Now, whether Weyland did or not is, is a whole different story. However... We do know that at the beginning of Alien, when they land on LV-427, 247, right? 426. 426, sorry. Uh, 247. LV-426, 247, 365. Man, sorry, Alien nerds. I just messed up the LV tag for that particular planet. Uh, The the new one is LV-223, correct, for For Paradise or whatever? And then Paradise
1: is a third planet, and then there's, there's some question as to whether the planet in covenant is actually the paradise referenced by prometheus at all right.
0: that I, I don't i don't think it is but, but yeah. one interesting note is that uh really use the lv shorthand at the beginning of those planets to potentially reference leviticus passages in the bible so if what? you go through each one of those planets there's apparently a corresponding uh quote from leviticus which is an interesting little exercise in, in bible studies for uh, other sci-fi nerds who are also interested in religion out there but uh uh so it it to me seems that neither David nor uh, Waylon yutani created the xenomorph outright, because if you go back to the first alien film when they go on the first juggernaut um, and find the uh, um, massive mummified body or what appeared to be a body of a a navigator of some sort with a huge hole in its chest that had clearly been chest bursted they make the remark that it appears to have been fossilized for thousands of years now that to me suggests that either that the thing that burst out of its chest was dormant for thousands of years or it literally happened that long ago Um, and we also know that the engineers were involved in uh, either deploying, researching, or creating the black goo that later allowed the xenomorph to genetically sort of emerge out of the soup that was created thereof. And it appears to me like this is a modified additional development or, or next addition uh, of something that is ancient and has or was used as a, a bioweapon by oh, other... Cultures out there for a long time, maybe not just the engineers, but there have been other fan speculations about like things that might be above them. Maybe what this guy on YouTube I watched recently referred to as the alphas. You know, the originators and the engineers are actually just kind of their uh, their gophers, which was hinted oh, at
1: by Ridley Scott also and and Lindelof in the conversations surrounding Prometheus. That there's, yeah. you know, who created the angels? Because we be didn't really, humbling. we haven't really gotten. You know, we're we're skirting very long route around the real question here, which is that Ridley Scott is an atheist and he's absolutely making statements about theological arguments in this, but he hasn't outed himself entirely in the way that say Philip Pullman outs himself. He waits until the last book of his dark materials trilogy to really make his his statement against C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia.
0: Yeah, you don't make the prestige, you don't, you don't give away the prestige at the beginning of the act, or the first act, you know, that's right. not how it's done. Right,
1: so the, the question of, first of all, we, we know from screen grabs of the mural in the goo chamber in Prometheus, we know that there actually is an egg in one of those paintings that decays when the atmosphere changes, Mm-hmm. And then there's facehuggers in that giant uh, fresco and the, yeah, like you said, the crash shift on LV-426. And also it's not at all clear how David could have ended up with all of these eggs to begin with in, in Covenant. There's like a, a clearly a missing
0: piece that that we're not getting at here and which is which is a queen potentially or you know we can a get to that as well a queen
1: maybe but then again else. ridley scott is reclaiming the narrative here like that's the whole process that he's he's on and the alien queen was something james cameron came up with and it's not clear where we're going to draw the line like the there's that scene in the the uh t- 21st century recut of Alien, where Ripley finds uh, Brett and Dallas cocooned in the landing equipment of the Nostromo, and they're egg turning. Morphing. Yes, egg morphing. They're turning into eggs, and so it's like reasonable to assume that that was always the proposed reproductive strategy of the xenomorph, and that it doesn't even really make sense there has to be a queen in aliens like it, like they the, the movie starts with ripley saying there were thousands of eggs and then suddenly we see and this is maybe this is an aside but i mean if we really want to talk about how dumb people are in this universe then let's look at the major dumb moment that I I can't believe I haven't seen anyone else talk about here because people are s- super critical of stupid movie characters when it's happening on screen. But how did yep. we get in Aliens, how did we get from one guy getting a facehugger on him to the entire base being totally overrun by aliens? And it seems like it all happened from that one facehugger So like it lays a queen chestburster in him that then like what escapes to the reactor and then just hides. And then they send three or four more guys into the derelict to get face hugged because they have all of those face huggers in the tubes. They spent like days or even weeks like studying this phenomenon scientifically before the base was completely overrun. So there's like a big X for me there in terms of it makes way more sense if the Queen Alien doesn't exist. And then they just sort of like fabricated it for the purposes of having a huge boss battle at the end.
0: I think for that reason, we can all agree that it was a badass and excellent idea. Uh, <laughs> I don't yes. think I would think about the Alien franchise the same without the Queen. And it's, it's an awesome... Uh, additional stroke of genius on Cameron's part with respect to the the matriarchal uh, themes of the franchise. So, I always thought it could be possible that maybe the very first Xenomorph to emerge from the very first facehugger could have eventually slowly morphed into the Queen over time, uh, maybe as the dominant, due to seniority, Xenomorph in the Hive. Uh, but that requires a single xenomorph basically to go through all the legwork of becoming a queen before it can lay a single egg, which can even get it a single drone to help it out or a warrior. So, uh, yeah, there is, there's a major question there, and I think, uh, egg morphing is, is a, a good possibility, and, uh, I believe Ripley has alluded to that still being potentially a canonical phenomena. So we'll see what happens there, but, uh, there are a couple things that, that I wanted to mention with respect to the Queen, really quick. Uh, and this is kind of jumping to the end of um, to the end of Covenant. That the crew, while acting very incompetent and constantly making poor decisions under stress, which a lot of us would, admittedly, um, <laughs> especially people who are not astronauts, uh, it's very clear that David is in particular testing Daniels because he obeys her orders on the covenant itself once they get out of uh, orbit from uh, or go into orbit from paradise or what what we think could have been paradise he lets her close doors and manipulate the trajectory of the protomorph throughout the ship he could have easily sabotaged it if her his only goal was to simply have her killed or turned into uh, you know fodder for the black goo or the alien And instead chooses to clearly do this cat and mouse thing where he is watching her responsiveness and how she reacts, which is also evidently superior to almost every other character. Um, prior uh, throughout the course of the movie's events because she acts competently and and decisively and defensively and uh, really does some pretty outlandishly, phenomenologically heroic things. She's also um,
1: got Danny McBride with a shotgun, which is like plus 10 points. Yeah.
0: yeah, that is plus 10 points at least. But she, she's got a lot of points already, basically. So uh, David, being who he is, I'm sure would have noticed this. And uh, it seems to me pretty evident from the end of the film given that he actually reveals his identity to her. That is one of her more stupid things is that she doesn't question that this could be potentially David instead of Walter since at that point he looked identical and already cut his hair and you know showed it to them. Um, she still ends up killing the, the protomorph uh, while he watches and he decides to tell her who he is uh, at the very end while she's going into cryo. With that creepy line, don't let the bed bugs bite. But the theory I have, and a lot of people have touched on, is that he is going to be using her as the basis for the eventual queen, that maybe he hasn't actually had the opportunity to study yet. Because it seems to me what he was doing on this planet was simply studying what was already there, dissecting, messing with, doing some experiments with this pre existing set of uh, tools and biological uh, bizarre <laughs> specimens. So I don't think he had a queen down there. I think if he did, we probably would have had some mention of that or something and that he wouldn't have necessarily been gunning for Daniels as much.
1: Yeah, I guess, you know, there's a lot of hubbub in the wire about that Elizabeth Shaw provided the eggs, that she was sort of the proto
0: queen, which hopefully we get there with that. But okay, so let's see. She was also barren, technically, before she got that squid in her stomach. So who knows if she actually had eggs to extract from her ovaries or whatever. But right. man, it feels creepy to say things like that. But this is in the context of aliens, so I'm just going let it, to let it slide. Right.
1: <laughs> so again, again, with this theme that Ridley Scott is playing with, which is the creator that can't create, you know, that, that we have Shaw giving birth to the trilobite through some sort of unholy union in Prometheus. And then we have David who has been told to his face by his so-called father that he has no soul. And, you know, it seems to really value and care about the fact that he is artistically creative, that he can write a new piece of music, which is like, it's clear that he sees Walter's inability to compose music as a tragedy and as one more line in the argument that human beings are awful and don't deserve to continue because and he we also sees, have to control everything that we make.
0: And he also sees Walter, therefore, as a, as a derivative and, and inferior product. And and even given his uh, physical upgrades that allow him to heal from uh, the, the flute stabbing from David uh, almost relatively immediately, he still... Uh, ultimately lost that fight, I think because there was a statement there from Ridley if he uh, were to be interviewed about this, I'd be interested to hear his answer that because of David's intellectual creativity he was able to outfox a far superior physical specimen in physical combat which is another uh allusion to the david and goliath argument which is also uh, something we can connect here given that he chose the name david looking at the statue of david who is the biblical david who defeated goliath it's also ironic that david's statue is as huge as a uh, engineer or as the potential goliath but yeah Totally.
1: Okay, so I looked up these passages from Leviticus while you were talking. Cool. Leviticus twenty-two, three. There isn't a, a 2.23. Say to them, if any one of all of your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. That's pretty straightforward. That's pretty that's much... a
0: definite reference, yeah. That's a
1: huge... <laughs> Clue dropped there that they're talking about the black goo as Promethean flame as a technology that when we're trying to exploit or manipulate it as a way of discovering the secret to immortality, that's a huge no-no. And then, <laughs> and then Leviticus 426, he shall burn all the fat on the altar. It's goat fat in other translations. He shall burn all the fat on the altar as he burned the fat of the fellowship offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for the leader's sin, and he will be forgiven. Again, that seems to reference the intentional destruction of the Nostromo. Scorsureth,
0: nuke it from orbit tactics.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. In this way, the priest will make atonement for the leader's sin. Well, Ripley didn't get forgiven in Aliens for destroying the Nostromo, but... That's definitely a film about things of great value being thrown under the bus. You know, crew expendable, and then bus expendable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, to to look at that uh, passage of Leviticus, uh, the active role that fire plays, connecting back to Prometheus, the you know first human wielder of fire itself. There's a a, a third that goes with the uh, the other planets. I'm not sure if you found that one or six. Are you talking about? The uh, oh, I believe Oro Guy Six is a discrete name. It's not one of the LVs, but there's there's the LV of uh, some additional non-canon uh, alien lore out there. So I'll see if I can dig on that when we put some notes in the uh, yeah. uh, description. But those those two are the are the main pieces that I've heard people refer to.
1: Hmm. Okay. So there's it's kind of a disjuncture here, but I, I want to since we're looping back into Prometheus. I want to bring this up because I actually I pitched birth movies death the uh, the film criticism website about this this week and I think that again when we're trying to understand why people keep doing such extremely stupid things in these movies we might be missing a layer of interpretation that as soon as I started considering it I found extremely illuminating and, and helpful which is we're actually in the in the same way that Nerdwriter did a great piece on Logan and franchises and genre tropes and getting to the point where those the initial energy of those themes and tropes and genres have been expended and they no longer move us the way that they originally did. He talks about the Western and there being a set of strategies for How to keep it fresh, how to move it on. One is satire, you know, to to poke fun at these things. One is to Alien Resurrection. (laughs) Arguably. Or like Galaxy Quest would be a great example of a film that was willing to get cheeky and self referential with its own sort of appropriation of the Star Trek mythos, for example. Or Deadpool for the superhero. Or Deadpool is an awesome example for superhero stuff, yeah. So here we are, and everyone seems to agree, including Ridley Scott, that the alien is sort of played out, that it's like impossible for it to scare us
0: in the same way that it originally did. Sure. That's why I think, honestly, you know, one of the scariest movies or scariest moments in Covenant is at the very end when it's very clear that David has 2000 human beings to fuck with in hypersleep with this horrendous. Uh, genetically mutating substance and, and collective weird little embryos that he pukes up, but that for me was more disturbing than the backburster and chestburster sort of body horror stuff, which you know was interesting to see that is played out and and he is aware of that and you know uh, I think what he's what he's getting at here is that um, you know fairly not ubiquitous, but but common major concern, especially in Silicon Valley right now with respect to artificial intelligence and what it may yield in the near future. And this is, you know, why Elon Musk is on such a, a soapbox about the potential downsides and, and dangers of AI, which is something that you know has been touched on in Future Fossils before and is no accident uh, as uh, a major horror element in Alien Covenant because uh, Ridley is obviously fascinated with this with Blade Runner and uh, some other projects he's been involved in. It seems to me very clear that his main cautionary tale here is about the rise of AI. So before we back this into the, the Blade Runner conversation,
1: I guess... The, the insight that I had here was that I think Ridley Scott, and this was sort of suggested by Hideo Kojima in a recent article that he did about the alien franchise, the, the creator of the Metal Gear video game franchise, uh, the guy who basically like legitimized video games as literature in my estimation, said that it's almost like Ridley Scott is making these new alien movies about the Alien franchise itself. That the Alien has come to represent itself in this weird metonymic way. And that the Alien films are the Alien here. So, like, hear this out. So, like, we got the Alien, Alien 3... Which is itself, as troubled as it was, it was a film about redemption. You know, like every one of those characters in that film sacrifices themselves in some way sooner or later or
0: redeems themselves somehow. and And they're all set up with a perfect art because they start from the bottom they start in a prison complex in the middle of some you know random place in space so that's where else is lower than that uh, with respect to civilization
1: yeah even the slimy corporate stooge gets his his moment of sacrifice and redemption but nobody wanted this movie to be made really except for Hollywood except for the system you know like Ripley I mean Sigourney Weaver did not want this movie to be made David Fincher absolutely got brought on at the very last moment and left with his shit drying in the wind. like his number one takeaway from that film is make sure that you have total creative control because you're the one that has to get scapegoated and blamed and hung out to dry when everything is said and done. I feel like Alien 3 in a su- in a certain way, it's clear that Fincher and Weaver, did everything they could do to make sure that the Alien franchise ended there. And that that's basically like uh, Idris Elba's Janik and Numi Rapace's Shaw in Prometheus, the heroine and the captain of the vessel, Prometheus, deciding that they're going to tank the Prometheus against that engineer juggernaut at the end of that film. That yeah. Prometheus is about the making of Alien 3, it's like it's about the making of this franchise where it's like what Ridley Scott shows up 2000 years later there's been a containment catastrophe and he's evaluating like how do we correct this mess you know like how do we prevent this disaster from happening again like whatever whatever happened here they're picking up the pieces of this ancient containment disaster and they're saying like shit we got to make sure this never gets off this planet and i feel like in a way if if this is an accurate reading of the film here then what we can expect from the next alien movie is some sort of like hail mary pass at a like conclusion of the origin story that basically frees up the franchise to be played with by other directors, you know, after Scott dies, but does so in a way that basically makes it kind of like impossible for anyone to trump his story of it. And I have my thoughts on that, but I'll just like leave it there and just say that like I think that really what we're seeing with these three films is Ridley Scott making a statement with his own independent film company about Hollywood and the process of how corporate interests in the success of a creative project in cinema is like inherently compromised and there's like a sort of an evil industrial demonic force here that can't be just isolated as it's not just Wayland. It's everything that Hollywood creates.
0: Yeah, so you know. Covenant is is a result of, of that process in a way, and perhaps it you know, uh, seems given your argument, which I've considered a bit but not as in depth, could be why Covenant kowtows a bit to the fan base and the need for the Zeno and sort of some you know, uh, back-bursting, throat-bursting type moments, those kind of scenes, because there is, to me, a very strong element of objectivism uh, or something like it in Ridley Scott's personal philosophies and uh, attitudes towards characters in his films, the plot as it unfolds. Um, given that in... Alien, after the rest of the group has been one by one picked off uh, after doing everything right, uh, arguably in that film, um, by the xenomorph Ripley, toe-to-toe, one-on-one, without a crew, without anybody else backing her up, without the android Ash, who if he were on her side would have been a major asset in defending herself, um, manages to stave off this otherwise indomitable, entirely apex predator destroying uh weapons sorry haley just gave me a weird look and slowly closed the door so i don't know what i was talking about there baby. i need to focus on the podcast thank you for the weird look okay you're <laughs> um, in trouble uh well i know she's just trying to mess with me so uh which is fair i i, I need it so going back to, to to ripley uh versus this crew on the covenant yeah Ripley as a single individual uh, in the prime you know, sort of context of, of the heroine character manages to do the impossible, whereas the entire crew of the Covenant together falls into groupthink and becomes dumber than let alone the sum of their parts and the individual parts themselves. Uh, which is something that, you know, uh, I've griped about here and there in my more misanthropic moments and something I've observed and I think does happen. Uh, sometimes at cultural levels, where you're dealing with tens of thousands or millions of people doing collectively something dumb that the single individual given their own personal choice may not have made. I, you know, for all of our other conversations about Ayn Randian philosophy, don't feel too positively about objectivism as portrayed by Atlas Shrugged and such uh, because I think it really uh, puts the individual over the collective uh, which is dangerous um, and does not necessarily jive with the, uh, the Vulcan motifs uh, of <laughs> caring for others over oneself you know the good of the many outweighs the good of the one or the few um, which I think is, is very important. Uh, it's not just objectivism, it's not just that sort of a combo of the two as far as I'm concerned philosophically, but it seems very clear that Ridley thinks that people in groups can be really stupid and, and thinks that individuals uh, of singular character and and willpower can be indomitable themselves even against a ultimate weapon of, you know, some kind of alien design. So, um, going back to, to Covenant, uh, and that type of philosophy, it seems unlikely to me that Ridley, at, at his age, unless it was absolutely, absolutely impossible, would have complete creative control over his project. And this is, you know, this is a great Scott production, so... Uh, he had his own company at his back. There, I'm sure, was some Hollywood watering down, but I don't think he would have just looked at his fan base and said, oh, they want that. I'm just going to give it to them because I want them to be happy. I don't think that's the way he would operate. For me, it seems like more likely, actually, they would either be, again, because it was impossible and it did have to get watered down because Hollywood bullshit, or because he did it on purpose as a bit of a fuck you to his fan base. Um, who he we thought were acting logically as a collective versus his singular vision of what he created.
1: Mm, okay. So that's a, that's an interesting riff into, if we're going to say alien three is about redemption, Prometheus was about disappointment. Every single character in that film is disappointed sooner or later. And that's not in the, like the <laughs> merely generic sense of, yeah, it's a, monster movie everyone's gonna get disappointed in their will to live sooner or later but like it really he lingers on this stuff in the deleted scenes you have that shot of peter whalen giving a ted talk and really establishing his hubris as a technocratic trillionaire and you see him reflecting on this as an old man as he's suiting up to meet the engineer, and it's his disappointment, and it's his daughter Meredith Vickers' disappointment that she was not selected as the heir, that she was out, she was bested by a robot. You know? Did to we ever be, get
0: proof that she was not a robot? Also, though, no? just uh, really curious, really quick.
1: No, no. We, I mean, nothing conclusive, but it's it is a little odd that, yeah, at any rate, no, we didn't. But it would be hard to believe that Wayland would allow for a synthetic that could say the word father with so much spite in her voice.
0: But Unless he wanted that, unless he's you know a bit of a dominatrix guy or whatever, and yeah. he does that stuff on the side after he's done it in the boardroom. Uh, but the, the the thing there that that reminds me of our uh, initial kickoff into the more um, philosophical aspects of the alien franchise, specifically artificial intelligence, and your mention of Mother and the collective uh, embedded nature of human consciousness at you know this point in in a theoretical future inside the artificial intelligence, inside the smartphone, as as an indistinguishable element within the motherboard or the logic board. I guess the motherboard would be a better term to use in this case. <laughs> so uh, as an individual component in that AI motherboard system... Uh, a human being's capacity to operate entirely independently in that really objectivist sort of uh, distilled nature that really seems to deeply value would be impossible. I just was thinking about that and combining the two things that we were uh, kind of gravitating towards here.
1: Yeah. I mean, really, you know, it's the McLuhan quote that I accidentally referenced to Campbell in episode 22, which is, as we shape our tools, then our tools shape us. And so, like, when I'm talking about this stuff, I'm talking about it in reference to WALL-E and to Idiocracy specifically as two films that poke at this anxiety that we have in the modern age, that we've taken it too far, that we've become too reliant on our technology, which is the case for us at every level, like if we take this, if we have a little historical perspective with every technological revolution there has been widespread concern on the part of the people living through it that we're sacrificing some part of our humanity in the process so in this case you know, this is actually, this is a good spot for us to dove this into the Blade Runner films where most of the animals, if not all of the animals that we see on screen, are themselves replicants, and as I'm suspecting, we will discover in Blade Runner 2049 that film. I, it seems like it will address issues of it this it having gotten completely out of hand. That like the people that we think are humans, that there actually may be more replicants out there than humans that it's not just like a handful of them that there's at some point we lost the we lost the plot as human beings and like we now rely on technology from birth to death we live within it we rely on it for reproduction and that's that's actually an under-discussed Issue in Covenant that they're specifically saying, like, look, we got a cooler full of human embryos. We don't even have any evidence that any of these human beings were born out of a human woman. Ultimately,
0: yeah, you're dealing with the the human factory, you know, not just a meat factory, a human factory uh, at that point.
1: It's clear that it's clear that this is already pretty well established as a technology. That in a way, the biomechanical line that is made explicitly blurred is blurred explicitly by the xenomorph is blurred implicitly. It's blurred as the invisible environment of human beings in the 22nd century in this franchise. That like we spend all of our time within the machine already we're basically a vestigial organ of the artificial intelligence that expresses itself alternately through synthetic humans the you know spacecraft ai and then also more kind of subtly as a system of corporate rules, contracts and agreements. Like we're already in 2017. We're already seven years past the weird flash crash that happened to the stock market in 2010, where for a moment we had a depressive, like a major downswing in the stock market that still to this day, nobody fully understands. Like we're at that point where we're like, we've put ourselves in the robo bassinet already like we're already the idiots on the wally arc ship hanging out with our super sodas and our vr helmets we're there
0: yeah it's it's not just the the replacements for us you know it's not just the the androids of a potential future or the replicant uh blade runners hunting themselves uh it is the facsimiles that we're already deeply embedded in like our social media accounts as uh non-real uh non-irl uh, approximation of self, uh, and often an exaggeration or, um, you know, idealized facsimile. Ridley Scott is uh, is an old man at this point. He's is in his eighties, you know. Uh, I already, as as a dude in his early thirties, get irritated when I look around in the subway when I'm waiting for the train to Manhattan or wherever I'm headed, and I see everybody on their phones, and not just young people, but but people of all ages staring at their smartphones, and I feel ashamed, and I put it down. Like I'm a bit of a contrarian, but I also like to space out sometimes and just like watch the uh, details of the landscape around me. But I do fall subject to that, and I'm definitely part of the, of the problem with that. But I can only imagine how somebody of his age and his stature and and uh, career would think about everybody just being stuck on their you know, phones, taking in what Terrence, what Terrence McKenna would call so much trash, versus creating themselves, when Ridley has been a creator his whole life.
1: Well, yeah, but again, a creator who was vaulted to his success by the... What William Irwin Thompson would call the military-industrial entertainment complex. Sure, a lot that of
0: other good scripts written by other people. The Alien, thought.
1: Alien was kind of a deal with the devil in some respect, as it gave, as it instantiated a demonic biomechanical archetype into the collective consciousness, into the public imagination, and that's what gave him the success to make all of these other films. And it's like. It's clear that the momentum of history is like behind a certain memeplex being born here. And in Covenant, it's specifically addressing this issue of like, what the hell are we even talking about when we when we draw a line between artificial people and people? Because if we're on a phone all the time, if we're hopelessly embedded in technology, if we were like born out of an artificial womb then it's getting to the point where what is a replicant and what is a blade runner is is almost negligible like this is actually one of those one of the reasons i love terminator salvation uh because that's that's the Terminator i haven't seen actually oh Uh, well then we won't we won't get into it but like that's the terminator film that finally starts to chip away at the dualism of human and Terminator, and say like, what happens if you give a Terminator a human heart, and then what happens if you put that Terminator heart inside a human
0: being? You know, and it's like, at, at what like, are we even fighting anymore? You that's know? pretty cool. That's that's a that's a next level uh, uh, sort of recombinatorial perspective on the the human Cylon duality from right. Battlestar, Battlestar Galactica. Galactica
1: totally nailed this one. It's like, at what point? how much cylon flesh tech does the battlestar galactica need before it becomes a cylon vessel at what point have we crossed the line and become cyborgs and i in a way it's like we don't you know we see david the android putting a, a huge premium on artistic creation but we haven't seen to my like off the top of my head I can't think of a single character in any of the Alien films that has done anything more creative than decorate a Christmas tree.
0: Sure. I can't think of any other examples to the contrary either, aside from Wayland being the creator of these uh, androids, these synthetics. So, and he's just taking, it, it seems- let's,
1: let's be real, he's just taking credit for something that like a thousand people did.
0: Sure, yeah, but he might have he might have had the singular vision or, or the, the drive or resources, let's face it, probably the money from his father or something to do it. But uh, it, it seems, again, readily apparent to me that, that Ridley deeply values those human characteristics and is deeply skeptical of the technological. So this does seem to be a commentary to me, suggesting that he deeply believes a single human being is capable of potential invention, intellectualism, creativity and other incredibly valuable attributes than, say, an entire supercomputer collective, uh, distributed across the world in a, a cloud, for example, uh, you know, one human versus mother in his sort of idealized distilled, maybe tropey way, uh, if you ever made a film where one human was just going up against Mother, which in, in the sort of deeper canon and non-canon aspects alike in this alien world, uh, alien universe, is potentially hooked up to all these other synthetics, including David and Walter in some way, and always keeping in contact with them via the cloud. I don't know how they you know, cross the gulf of space, maybe some Ansible technology where there's a delay, but but the argument that has been made is that all these uh AIs are connected as one, and there's essentially one mother that is part of all these ships out there exploring the cosmos. So I I don't think it is so much, again, a uh, techno-porn-like demonstration of the incredible power and capacity of artificial intelligence uh, and more so a uh, a reminder of the absolute quintessential nature of the human being, which, you know, literally quintessential, meaning fifth element, uh, Mm. the human spirit. Uh, in addition to Earth, Wind, Fire, and Air, you know?
1: Speaking of films in which a human being is manufactured in a 3D printer... Yeah? (laughs) Uh, Ex Machina, or where are we going here? Oh, no, in in Fifth Element. Oh, yeah. And (laughs) also a film that includes the alien black goo as sort of a transcendental, demonic archetype.
0: Yeah, interesting point there. Uh, So... A lot of this is making me think, honestly, more in-depth about the film and and thinking a bit more fondly of it. So I would like to circle (laughs) back to my initial uh, sort of devil-on-the-shoulder perspective here. Quick, before you like it, say something wrong. (laughs) Right. Well, I I, I can trash this a little bit, because there there are a couple things that that really do bother me, and and I have a hard time reconciling, even with extreme, you know, conversation, (laughs) extreme conversation. Uh, like we're having now where we're really chewing on this stuff a lot. Um, and I will say that about the film before I trash it, that there have been a lot of people talking in great depth about it, including those who hate it, seeming fascinated by why they do and why they might be wrong. And, you know, the video content on YouTube right now for in-depth Alien reviews lasting between 20 minutes to an hour is is immense, you know. Uh, oh, I even know. People who hated it, they talk for like half an hour. Yeah, you've probably watched a lot of them too. It's kind of fascinating. <laughs> and not just because of the film franchise, but because of all the other elements to it, and what this, what this tells about our culture, how it reflects back on all these other sci-fi precedents that have been set, um, all the other religious and, and philosophical background elements. So, one major question I still have is is uh, going back to the beginning of Prometheus, when Shaw and her husband are exploring all these different ancient caves, including one on, I guess, the Isle of Sky, and they see the same star pattern in each of these murals with this large, giant type figure outstretching its hand to a specific star or location or planet, whatever it might have been, um, which is where they're supposed to be headed in Prometheus. Why, if these engineers or the alphas or whoever's out there that was responsible for us uh, in this world, why would they go to all these different cultures, tell them all the same story, give them all the same star map, only so we could go there and find their military base later? Like, what was the purpose of that?
1: Yeah, what were they t- what were they pointing to to begin
0: with? Were they saying don't go here, which is a really that's a bit that's a really bad white bear problem right there and they, they should surely know that would be uh, contentious for us especially given the Adam and Eve thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that one. I guess you kind of have to wrap the engineers up in in this this technologically dependent idiot argument if you're going to go there because sure, they're clearly tech
0: dependent as well.
1: Yeah, I mean they're they're utterly and completely fused with the machine by the point that we encounter them. But again, you know, this is I want to I want to suggest that the answer might be in the inevitability of this situation here. Because the pet idea that I have for the the next alien film. Like if I were hired to write the next alien movie, this is what I would do with it. It would make a lot of people angry, but it would wrap it up in a way that I feel is satisfying. Because like, here's the big questions right now. How is that alien ship on LV-426 as old as it is if David supposedly created this... Particular strain of the xenomorph. They're not like,
0: as old; it's fossilized. They say it's fossilized. We're not just talking about carbon dating; like it's, it's mineralized, which right. obviously takes a lot of time.
1: Right, thousands or millions of years. So then we got the question of how old are the engineers actually? Anyway, like we get the imp- we we're led to believe that they've been tampering, if not response with, if not responsible for. Life on Earth from
0: the bi- the beginning, so billions of years. Apparently, Morocco through three hundred thousand years ago. Now we we can confirm was uh, you know involved with engineers in some way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> going, <laughs> to, going to the to, recent discovery this past week. You know, so to yeah
1: to, to get into the actual. Seems like this year there's been just a total proliferation of bizarre archaeological stuff from the the new. Mammoth site in the Pacific Northwest that suggests that we might be able to put Americans on North America, or like, <laughs> Americans, human beings on the North American continent like 130,000 years ago. That's being debated. And then we've got way, way, way older than anything previous evidence of human beings in, where was it, Greece? In the, Medi- in Mediterranean Europe? And then this thing in Morocco. So, yeah. At least we can agree that Ridley Scott's like on the pulse as far as ancient alien related human origin style concerns
0: are and I think that I think that, that that's sort of the point here is that by the way let's let's not be let's not forget that awesome tiny bird from from the dinosaur era really quick uh as a mention a side note to those really awesome archaeological finds in a place i know you're probably mega stoked on that one
1: yeah dinosaur brains fossilized dinosaur brains like what the hell never saw that no one coming <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: yeah but okay so i
1: feel like you can really tie it all up if you say with the next alien movie Ridley Scott that the alien human beings synthetics the engineers like none of them were created at all like if this is ultimately a, a an atheist's thesis for a world in which human beings have no control and nothing is really ultimately responsible or capable of being responsible for its creation. If this is really ultimately a, a a statement on fatality and mortality and fatedness, then I think it's, it's fair to ask how the engineers could remain genetically consistent across a 4 billion year timeline of interaction with the planet earth and to look at that as a huge like gaping hole in this cosmology that the writers may be intentionally leaving open until they're ready to address the fact that the engineers are a time traveling race and that and that what we're gonna see here possibly is that the events of the next Alien film result in events that are already in the past of Prometheus and Alien, namely the containment catastrophe on LV-223 and the crash of the derelict ship on LV-426. That we could get a sort of like sequel, prequel, because he said that the next film, he intended to be between to take place as a sequel to Prometheus and as a prequel to Alien Covenant. Now, how can that be Mm -hmm. a prequel to Alien Covenant and also address the destiny of the Covenant ship on Origai 6 unless the end of that movie results in an event that's in the past of the other movies?
0: Or uh, something like that where it it appears to be... Something along those lines where David or maybe another synthetic or, or Wailing yutani has staged this fossilization to sort of scrub the past of where this thing came from to make it look like it came from thousands of years ago because that would be a damn good way to do it. So I think both those arguments are potentially uh, good routes to go. I have to admit I am tired of time travel tropes in sci-fi. I think it's a great way to get out of anything, including now creating you know a a non Kelvin prime universe for Star Trek Discovery that looks like the Kelvin universe but but apparently isn't. Um, I'm not a huge fan of time travel, so I hope it's my idea, but yours sounds pretty cool, too. I would take it.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I like just the thought that we have humans are created by engineers that the engineers were created by humans somehow, or, like, we got out, and we interfered with the timeline, and our actions led to the containment catastrophe on LV-223, which we still don't really f- properly understand, which is why the engineer basically, like, recognized David and Wayland and was like, oh, hell no. Ripped
0: and- off his head? Like, why would the engineer do that? He's, he's meeting the synthetic beam for the first time, which is clearly no threat to him, and his first choice is to rip its head off. Uh, so that is interesting.
1: Unclean, and we're led to believe that that's because Wayland specifically asks him for the secret of immortality. It's a reasonable enough thing, but it's one of these things where it's like, if you see the guy that like killed your family, then you're going to go for him. And so that that really you get into that Hollywood, yeah. (laughs) You get you you end up tying like a a Celtic knot of none of these agents the engineers aren't really creating anything they're just sacrificing themselves into the promethean flame which is responsible for creation we don't know that they invented the black
0: goo sure they could have even just planted the the evidence of uh, you know where to go on purpose so that we would go there uh because it's all part of their weird plan thing be, uh, this is again the prophecy one of the has systems. been fulfilled yeah yeah or alternatively, this is going back to my my gripe re- with respect to these cave maps is uh, the star maps in the caves is to give myself a little bit of an angel on the shoulder perspective on it to go with this. maybe uh, that world was the the earth project world, sort of the uh, the waypoint of the engineer culture or the alpha culture or whatever else has evolved in this timeline out there to draw humans towards the planet that was responsible for creating them when they were ready. Uh, And that later changed to a militarized version, Uh, basically the planet still responsible for Earth's future, then weaponizing itself uh, to sort of turn the tide after, you know, our our crucifixion of Christ, which is something we haven't really talked about. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with that uh, embedded message, especially in Prometheus, um, who, you know watch lots of youtube videos or just uh kind of alien nerds in general about this stuff but you know that being a, a obvious huge motif in, in prometheus with the title itself the fact that on christmas day shaw has this you know virgin birth of the squid that comes out or her like the trilobite um and, and the uh the other deeply christian elements in the film including her cross being embedded there and the fact that this whole uh weaponization program that the engineers were supposedly going to launch happened 2,000 years prior, or was going to, and they changed their mind, so they go there in Covenant, too, like
1: when the when the chestburster first emerges from Orem and it does this sort of little Christ-like thing, yeah,
0: Christ-like pose, there's a little uh, uh, um, sort of Messed around with, protomorph-type uh, Creature in David's uh, Lab area that is In a crucifix uh, position as well So yeah, yes. it's definitely it's definitely there I think uh, Ridley is, for all Of his atheist perspectives Fascinated apparently by uh, uh, Theology and the Texts and the history thereof and what that Why else make Exodus, gods And
1: kings, I mean
0: Absolutely, he's clearly fascinated with it, he's trying to Find his way, it's like, uh, you know, a lot of And this is no offense to people out there who are really interested in neuro, you know, anatomy, psychology, things of that nature. But I know a lot of people who have gone into those fields because, in a way, I I see in them a deep questioning of their own psychological, neurological, phenomenological experiences of the world. They want to know why they are the way they are through this discipline. So, And who wouldn't? You know, if you know more about the mind, why not use it on yourself? But uh, David, I believe, in in this uh, will end up potentially sacrificing himself as well into the Promethean fire and giving rise to the xenomorph as we know which is obviously far more biomechanical so there's an element potentially of David's sacrifice here but sacrifice in general being a repeated theme with each person that dies in the life cycles of these creatures being what gives them life uh, uh, in a way Christ-like and in sort of a fucked up fashion uh, <laughs> there's another uh, criticism that I do have though uh, about the recent prequels, Prometheus and, and Covenant in that... Um, they're too pretty. Well, they're very pretty, and I have to I have to admit that I, I did not have the best seat when watching Covenant. And I, I almost did that on purpose because I didn't want the prettiness of it, which I knew would be inevitable with, with Ridley Scott, to distract me from the story. I almost wanted to have sort of a, a shitty view of it, so um, I'll admit that colored my experience a little bit because I wasn't being distracted on purpose by the glitziness of it. I didn't see it on the best screen, didn't see the best spot, so I was not blown away by the visuals because I knew who I would otherwise be, and I probably will be when I won't go back and watch it on Blu-ray or whatever. But uh, I was just looking for story on purpose as I had already heard people kind of tearing it apart a little bit. So the other thing that really bothers me here is that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Shaw knew that david was responsible for effectively poisoning her husband with the black goo which put the squid in her stomach that she had to extract herself in this med pod so why would she repair david and become like best friends with him on the journey in this juggernaut to what she thinks is paradise and what he is actually doing which is taking her to a, a clearly to me different planet with not even the engineer species residing on um if you look closely at these you know beings on the uh, Paradise World, they don't appear similar to the Engineers at all. In my perspective, they look pinkish skin-hued, they have human eyes, they have more varied features that are not quite as god or marble-like in nature. They're definitely something different the only technology there appears to be the mother juggernaut the docking station which they clearly look up to literally and figuratively when the juggernaut arrives almost walking as gods and all coming out into that massive courtyard area in the middle of the city i don't think engineers would do that for their own i think they're doing it because they're they're like us they were created or entwined in this whole system and uh, david brought her there under, under false pretenses so there are several elements of like really foolish and, and seemingly totally illogical decision-making processes here that even if we were to crunch through all these other philosophical and personal character aspects of ridley scott himself et cetera, can't really get to the bottom of because why why would david basically do that to her husband and effectively to her by impregnating her with this thing and then have them be the people that share this journey together through the stars. Well, first of all... She would never fix them. She would never.
1: First of all, her desire to understand may have outweighed her sense because he's the only one that could pilot the alien juggernaut.
0: And that is what got her there in the first place, is her insatiable curiosity to find out what where we come from. Yeah,
1: so she may have needed him in order to achieve her own ends and just sort of... And also, it's not... She suspects him for impregnating Holloway with the black goo, but I don't think she knows for sure. It's amazing that they didn't have a conversation about that. You really think that you know after he knocks her out on the operating table that she'd be, like, you know, eager to exchange more than just a dirty look with David. But yeah, the other, the other part, though, is we can't underestimate human loneliness.
0: True. Sure. You know, or Stockholm Syndrome, and you only got one buddy, and you don't trust them. But, yeah, these, these things happen in our, uh, our history, for sure.
1: Totally. So
0: but There's another one, though, which is, which is similar. And, and maybe part of this may be also attributable to uh, Ridley's you know, strong point here of of human trust in technology, which is is also present in Covenant to sort of echo that criticism of the, the David and Shaw and Holloway uh, trifecta of evil um, and weirdness. Biomechanical uh, love triangle yeah oh geez that's pretty much what it was i didn't think about it that way that's that's gross man uh i like it uh so (laughs) the (laughs) the the parallel in in covenant is that you know david after like blowing gently on the neomorph in front of the captain who has seen this creature rip apart his crew and destroy effectively his shit through its chaotic you know bullshit um (laughs) Then goes down a dark corridor, which most people wouldn't do anyway. You just see a dark corridor, you're on an alien planet, it's drippy down there. Forget everything else, you probably wouldn't want to go down there. Your your whole crew maybe is still fine, they're just over there roasting marshmallows. You'd be like, ah, fuck this, I'm still not doing it. He's already seen everybody die, David clearly being related to this thing in some way, and then follows him down this dark corridor and looks into the egg. So unless, and this is the hypothesis I had before going into the movie that I didn't see any evidence of, that unless... David is somehow a master of hypnosis and managed to basically boggle this guy's mind into doing it and following him almost like maybe he got scopolamine or something. (laughs) I don't see any way that a a human under their own motives would have ever, ever made that choice regardless of how stupid they are because a child would not do that for fear of the dark.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I will say that to the credit of Billy Crudup, I think he played Chris Orham with... The precise amount of desperation and fragility that it's like really clear by the point in the film that he makes that decision that this dude is one super devout, but also super, super insecure and devout as a coping mechanism for his insecurity And I think that even though it
0: seems like... Which is how Ridley probably views religious people in general. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like
1: a kind of unfair... Someone can have that kind of faith and not be a total idiot. But again, we're starting from... We're grading this class on a curve. Like, we're starting from the average Covenant crew member who's already a total idiot and at least ostensibly somewhat sciencey to... This guy, which, you know, we got to remember also that everyone has just lost their spouse and that they're insane. I
0: just and don't, super stressed. They're yeah. under a huge crunch there. So yeah, Neither I don't know.
1: I don't know that I. Uh, it's just it's one of these things. It's like, you know, the best movies make it really clear that these people are making these bad decisions because they are so stressed out. Because otherwise, we're going to sit there in the comfort of our theater seats and just totally troll them super hard like in jurassic park like everybody talks about everyone running away in the path of the crash juggernaut in prometheus but that makes sense comparable to climbing down a tree away from a falling car rather than
0: around the tree Sure, I wasn't too bothered by that because th- that thing was freaking huge. I mean, you might need to strafe quite a bit to have made that uh, tactic effective for all I know. So, uh, yeah, and that also is also potential proof, by the way, that Vickers was not a uh, synthetic because uh, she did not, uh, you know, get along so well with that, um, compared to Shaw. So, truly, physically, she did not perform optimally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: I don't know. You got any more, you got any more complaints about this movie that I admit i think we've equalized i think i think it's safe to say that it could have been done much better but that i think my my main issues with the film are sort of believable in a suitably misanthropic
0: and desperate vision of the
1: future which aliens definitely is
0: sure i mean and and I I would agree with that overall. I think that my my overall criticism is sort of an umbrella for all the others I mentioned, and applies to a lot of our current uh, fiction strategies in, in. A lot of uh, Hollywood productions, a lot of our methods for storytelling, um, falling back on on certain tropes, a lot of them can either go into a category of underestimating the audience and laying everything out very plainly, um, or can go in the direction of purposefully creating these super dense substructures that because of their fundamental connection to the major plot points that you see, they almost need to be digested over time in order to appreciate and fully understand the plot points. And uh, both can be utilized to make a great movie, but both can be over or downplayed significantly. So the question is, with a movie like this, um, at what point do you really start to lose even the intellectual audience? Like, I would consider myself an intellectual alien nerd fanboy. And uh <laughs> you know I'm not necessarily proud of that. Uh, it's not something I'm going to put on a resume, but it's it's I think fairly accurate as far as uh, personal descriptions go in that respect. If I have these issues with it, has he maybe overplayed his uh, his embedded substructure hand and and if if not uh, I'm missing something, and I might actually get a lot more out of these films, but there are again like those significant Seemingly totally illogical, regardless of the substructures involved, attributes to the films that uh, I cannot reconcile. And you know, watching Blade Runner in the final cut form, with you know, including the footage of the unicorn, uh, even though it was B-roll for for Legend, um, <laughs> it's, it's very yeah, it's very interesting that that even watching the original version, I did wonder at the end, and that, that was another major you know. Fan favorite of my mom's, so so she talked to me uh, about that at the end of the uh, the film, asked me if I noticed anything, or if I had anything that I thought that the film was trying to get at that wasn't shown, and we talked about it for like a couple hours, and then she mentioned that at the very end because uh, I had sort of inferred a bit about Deckard potentially being a Blade Runner, this is not having seen the Dream of the the Unicorn or anything, so that is uh, I think an excellent example of a uh, a sub. Plot element that's actually the the main plot element, writing just underneath the surface and, and just effective enough of a way to be digestible um, by people who really care about it and and deeply meaningful. So. We might get that in, in the next one. Like you said, we'll, we'll have to see how this transitions into to Alien, the original 77 film, and, and how he gets there. And, and we might not get that prestige moment until then. But Blade Runner was a great self-contained example of how to make something really deep, but also uh, a puzzle you can solve. I don't necessarily agree with J.J. J. Abrams' like you know, uh, unsolvable puzzle box phenomena, where it's almost <laughs> like best not to know. I'm like, well, maybe that's why Lost kind of lost me at the end. Um.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, nowadays... I just worry that we've got an 80-year-old auteur who's got a message he's not going to live to fully articulate, and we're all going to be like, that was sure stupid when he left the prestige. You know, like, if, if the next Alien movie, all these people talking about how this one was disappointing in the box office, it's like, if we prevent the third act of a statement from being uttered, I I think we will have lost something really valuable, even if that movie sucks, you know, because then we will know, we will know that Ridley Scott was responsible for putting his vision out there and that it sucked. At least we gave the guy the time to finish his sentence, you know, but he's like old enough that his sentences are like ent sentences compared to your average millennial attention span. I just worry that we don't, that we don't have the the like yes, stamina <laughs> to yes. make it through this. Yeah. No. Please, just get to the point. Just don't make two more films, dude. You won't live that long.
0: Just you know, uh, it, another thing was worth saying. If it's not worth saying, you know, or taking a long time to say, as Treebeard would uh, would say, slowly, <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. I I, I just mangled Tree I feel so so bad about that. But you get the gist. Um, yeah, I mean there are, there are other elements here that are, that are interesting to me. And the fact that we're we're talking about this now after a couple weeks of the film being released and including to highly mixed reviews, and you know myself included not enjoying my first viewing after being a huge fan, and and even enjoying Alien Three and Resurrection to be honest, not not what Not immensely. And I was a child when I watched them. I have not gone back and revisited those ones. I've revisited only alien and aliens because I almost want to keep them innocent. I want to keep them sort of untouched. But uh, you're going to have to.
1: I'm not. I mean, (laughs) it's like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 in there.
0: Oh, man, okay. I, won't, I have not seen that yet, so I'll, I'll leave that in the bin as well. Uh, so so there was this, this other element, too, of... Uh, at what point, though, is this also a gesture in absurdity? Because Haley and I decided to watch just a random Netflix movie on Saturday. We, we ended up choosing this one called Mindhorn, which is absolutely obtusely, super-densely ridiculous to the degree of... of it coming back around into a commentary on, on normalcy <laughs> it's probably a poor description of it but if you get a chance to check it out it's, it's about this washed up actor who plays this character called mindhorn for for the bbc and like with kind of spy thriller you know late 70s parallel to macgyver or some you know kind of uh murder detective mystery show being an actor without work in his late to middle age and not really being able to distinguish when he's in this role or not, Uh, getting what he thinks is a gig, which is a call from the police department because there's a, a guy who's threatening to murder people um, who claims to be his ancient rival, or his, his old rival, the uh, the Kestrel, going up against Mindhorn. And Mindhorn thinks it's the gig goes in and is trying to talk this guy down from all this, and thinks that he's actually getting a paid actor's role versus like being called on by the local law enforcement. So it, it gets super trippy and absolutely bizarre, and... and super self-referential like matryoshka doll you know dense layers within layers but the, the weirdest part about it uh, given all that was at the end of, of totally being mindfucked by this movie for two hours and both of you know us being thoroughly confused at the end it says executive producer ridley scott <laughs> and i was like this guy has obviously way more of a sense of humor than he's let on through most of his film uh, legacy hmm
1: yeah, I like I said. I honestly think he's he's at this point. I think he's kind of trolling everyone.
0: That's probably a part like, of it. Yeah,
1: Prometheus is a film about disappointment, and it disappointed everybody. And I just know for a fact that really Scott was sitting in his his like throne room or whatever the hell, being like, <laughs> if only you had taken
0: an English class in college, you would have seen what I did there yeah he's already made the classics fuck it at that point like he's made Alien and Blade Runner like you know like his sci-fi legacy is set for sure no matter what he does at this point so um I, I know there are a lot of people talking about him kind of ruining that potentially and and what you mentioned about maybe him not getting the chance to finish it could be a destabilizing factor but I think there's uh, more going on here that meets the eye uh, and Transformers by the way I'm putting in that same bin I mentioned earlier. <laughs> <laughs> at this point I think he's probably liberated because
1: you can't ruin a film franchise that already had alien versus predator requiem Can't
0: yeah although yeah I, I will say there are there are some soft spots and i saw these when i was in my teens in high school but like for the first avp just because of the sheer like adrenaline rush fun you know like harkening hearkening back to playing avp with my friends and uh, uh, you know our best friend's house on his land together after high school you know so that there are definite nostalgic elements that can sort of usurp my objective take on these things, and and that's part of why um, I might be more disappointed with this than if I was not familiar with the rest. Like it might be interesting. There's the uh, um, I forget the exact term, but there's the order that a lot of uh, fanboys have said you should watch the Star Wars films in in order to sort of really give you the best uh, experience, which is to say you should not know that Darth Vader is is Anakin Skywalker until. Uh, After Luke finds out Because that's a major moment So Mm -hmm. watching the prequels Before you watch the original trilogy Is not necessarily the best thing to do In this sort of configuration So Interesting I would have suspected That
1: that you would have to Like Straight out the gate Just watch Attack of the Clones Just get it over with It's like It's like From there it's uphill
0: or well, you know the fan edits of those that like we should do. We should petition Lucasfilm <laughs> to maybe make a special edition, actually, of the prequels and go back and just honestly, got redo even a lot of the CG and everything. Cause it was all blue screen anyway. You could go back and just you know upgrade the the texture packs and all that stuff and re render it, and you'll have yourself a better version. So um, this is obviously distilling a lot of the insanely hard work that goes into ILM geniusry. But uh, you could at least
1: <laughs> give Jar Jar Banks a different voiceover.
0: Yeah, or a different character, or something. You could, you could, you know, uh, go the Sith Lord route with him, maybe, or something. But uh there is a lot to be said for the biases of of our nostalgia, and you know, both of us are, and I'm sure a lot of the fans of the franchise in general are uh, colored by that as well. Like the nostalgic draw to these films is part of the reason why I'm so fascinated to talk about it, even though I wasn't impressed by the film itself when I went to go see it, and now I want to go see it again. I get, you know, that's because I'm trying to reconcile it with all these like moments of deep questioning back when i first first watched alien for example like realizing that we do need to have some level of self-protection because for all we know there could genuinely be something like that out there in the cosmos and we need to be ready for stuff like that we need to be prepared as well as you know gentle and creative
1: you know while we're on that subject how come james t kirk never wears a condom you know like you would (laughs) think you would think that if he's, you know, visiting alien landscapes all the time, if you know what
0: I mean, that he would put a, a helmet on his little astronaut. Uh, nepotism might be your answer. A certain amount of narcissistic <laughs> uh, recklessness to sort of see what combinatorial patterns are capable uh, in this, you know, uh, jaunt that he's making through the stars, His star jaunt. I think, I think called. there's
1: genuine room in this for a cross- a franchise crossover in which we discover that James T. Kirk is actually the vector, the the vector for the engineers, black goo. And in fact, there is an episode of the original star Trek where James Kirk is covered in black goo. He like has to fight this, this thing. And then he, he almost makes love do it when it occurs in the form of a humanoid woman. So this is not, this is not mere idle, chatter folks this is you know the question of does our charismatic heroic ego does the icon of the self is it simply a reproductive vector for that transcendental machine intelligence that all of us are already embedded in are we are you know, like, we're already doing its work
0: to to sort of back your claims here a little bit because this is this is absurd and a ridiculous way to end this i think but potentially (laughs) valuable because if you recall lieutenant yar meets her untimely death at the beginning of the next generation by getting killed by a black goo creature so the the first main character to die in the next generation from the bridge crew was killed by black goo i just realized (sighs) that that's i I don't know if i'll be able to sleep for a while Um, I might have to go back and rewatch that episode and try you know, because Yar was she's deeply missed, man.
1: I think I think we've now I've I've managed to talk about so, black tenority. goo on at least three episodes of this show and
0: the essay that I just put out. So let's call that a wrap, shall we? Yeah, I I think so. Um, I'll have to just go uh, pull up a bunch of pictures of Lieutenant Yar here really quick and just kind of uh, again have a little bit of a tear sasha a silent moment. But uh, it was really good to talk to you about this particular subject and and I would love to uh, have another conversation uh, after the Last Jedi kind of sinks in a little bit and we can go into spoilers. I would love to sort of recapitulate that plus relating some of these things to to The Force Awakens, which is a film I really did enjoy potentially again for really nostalgic reasons, but also because those plot holes a lot of people had problems with. I feel if you you go back into the canon you really do explore what's going on you'll understand a little bit better and a lot of those tend to vanish if you read the books whatever might be there so mm. um, I think that's a good balance for me personally even though I was complaining about JJ's puzzle box earlier of how these uh, sub elements can really sort of uh, be uh, logically deduced and, and chewed with or chewed through you know
1: I guess the takeaway is make smart movies for smart people
0: please yeah it might actually make you some money guys i, I think uh you might be surprised <laughs> right um, which on. is which is another thing I want to mention really quick just uh, another side point but uh the the neil bloom camp what if uh alien three replacement um yeah. is now Apparently not going to happen, but I was very interested to see that. I'm not like a huge fan of Chappie or uh, Elysium, but uh, I'm sorry to see that being usurped. And I am sometimes wondering if, if Ridley genuinely is overstepping his uh, creative bounds here by falling victim to what we refer to at the beginning of the podcast as the George Lucas effect. You know, is he is he actually sabotaging his own creation by, say, preventing Bloom Camp from going right forward?
1: Well, if Ridley Scott is Peter Wayland in this meta-analysis, then it really doesn't matter what he wants because the beast that he created is at the driver's seat. Yeah,
0: and it, it's self-evident at that point. I mean, Waylon obviously makes some major mistakes too, but that's that's the character with you know all his creative capacity and, and power and wisdom. So maybe that is a direct parallel to Ridley and a disclaimer on how he might not actually have all of his shit together and that that's part of the point. Yeah, I think, I mean, if, if we're
1: to look at the entire Alien series as... Ethically equivalent to Frankenstein and Jurassic Park, if the statement that he's ultimately making is your creations will get away from you, then. Yeah.
0: But that would be a good follow up actually to, uh, and uh, maybe this would be a better first contact point or, or next contact point to have this kind of a, a film conversation on uh, future fossils together would be following Blade Runner uh, 2049. And then uh, I think that actually will follow into questions raised by The Force Awakens and then Last Jedi as well. So uh, well let's, uh, let's have another convo after uh, the new Blade Runner if you're done. Sure, dude. Great having you back on the show.
1: Likewise. Shit, I almost forgot to mention... I wrote a poem inspired by the dark erotica of H.R. Giger called Reading Necronomicon at the New York Comic Con, and it is funny and sexy and scary, and you can read it and listen to it on my Patreon account if you... Want to go pay that a visit. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Think you're wonderful. Can't believe you made it all the way to the end. Way to go. I hope that your descendants maintain critical thought and canny streetwise sensibilities even as they offload their cognitive faculties to the motherboard. <laughs>